Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today's the 34th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that's likely quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up learn, struggle, work, and live in our world. My guest today has over 20 years of experience in design, construction, and facility management. She's a champion of developing workplace strategies with sustainable design and technological solutions at the Federal Reserve. I am thrilled to introduce a woman who made her journey to the States from Jordan in 2001 and has had an amazing career as an accomplished architect. Rima Asinyari. Rima, welcome to Our Voices. Molly, thank you for having me. Okay, I butchered the last name. Help our guests, please. Say it properly. Sure. It is Assyriani. 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 Uh-huh. I love it. Uh, so I'm so delighted we're getting a chance to reconnect. I had the privilege of meeting you along with your brilliant class of leadership fellows. Thank you, International Women's Forum. Um, and I'm really delighted for listeners to get to know you. Yes, uh, definitely. Thank you, IWF. They uh, created this space and time for um, me to meet these amazing fellows and spend a few days with them and with you, Molly. You are a, I refer to you as a magician. It feels like you waved a wand and helped us just see and understand ourselves and connect with each other in a deep and meaningful way. And because of you, I now have 40 plus lifelong friends. Pleasure. The privilege was all mine, and uh, it really it brings me great joy. And I'm I'm really excited about folks having a chance to hear, um, you know what what it's like to be you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So I was uh, born and grew up in the Middle East in Jordan. I am one of four amazing siblings, uh, each successful in their own way, and each with an impact on hundreds of people around them. Uh, This, of course, is mostly thanks to uh, my parents and the way they raised us. They taught us to work hard, be honest, be faithful, and be eager to change things for the better around us. Um, Our uh, summers uh, growing up were mostly at home. Uh, My siblings and I uh, almost every day met in the morning and had what we call our negotiation session of who does what chore that day. It was hilarious. It was funny uh, at times, a little bit of friction. I did this yesterday. You should do it today and so on. But um, at the end of the day, all the chores are done and we happily sit down and watch TV as our reward. It was great. So I uh, I grew up as a Christian in a Muslim country. At school, I would be one of two or three Christians who have to leave the classroom during the religions class. Uh, my friends who were Muslims never made me feel different than them, than others around me. Um, it doesn't say that others uh, weren't quick to remind me that I was a minority, but in general, I had a happy uh, childhood growing up. My dad worked in the Air Force. 
And uh, even after he retired, we moved quite a bit when I was younger. Uh, I missed out on long-term friendships. We didn't have internet or phones to keep up, you know, relationships back then. Uh, but I always tried to see the positive side of, of things and this constant change. And the way I convinced myself that I had an opportunity to enhance or improve people's first impression of, re- of me every time we moved. So this gave me like social skills to break barriers faster and help people get to know me and me get to know them in a shorter period of time. Uh, As I grew up in Jordan, I got my Bachelor's of Science in Architectural Engineering at the University of Jordan. Then I took some time off and went on a year-long missions trip on board the MV Doulos. This is a floating ship, a floating book fair. Uh, On board, uh, I lived with 350 amazing people, mostly my age, from 45 different countries from around the world. We traveled from Coast City to another, uh, selling all sorts of books in mostly developing countries. It was a very unique experience that took me out of my comfort zone for sure. And I'm still in touch with many of those friends uh, or the friendships I made on, at Dulos. <clears throat> um, so I came back to Jordan and worked in the architectural field until I met my husband, Hanny, who lived in DC at the time. After we married, I immigrated to the U.S. Uh, a few years later, we had our two amazing children who are almost adults now. Uh, they are two boys. I worked in the D.C. private sector for a while and then uh, came to work in government. Okay, wait. This is, so I'm, I'm just trying to figure out the floating book fair. I'm, a, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit, I'm like, what? <laughs> so so first, first, let me just say this notion of, wow, meeting new people, and this is a chance for me to enhance my first impression. Seriously, d- did that just come to you on your own or did someone tell you that? No, I was I was a little girl. I mean, well, maybe by the time I really was aware of that, I was in my early teens. Um, but yeah, we moved a lot around and you, you're not always successful in your relationships and friendships. So every time we moved, I had to restart from zero. Neighbors school friends, everyone around me. Um, so I had to adapt and quickly learn how to make friends fast. Yeah, that's a really, it's, I appreciate you bringing that up because um, I've seen that with f- some of the folks who maybe have stayed in the same place and you've known the same group of people for your first you know, 18 years, you don't necessarily get thrust into those environments and it while I'm sure it was not always so comfortable, your ability to find a way um, and to learn from that is is impressive as a young person. I could imagine it could be a little bit unsettling. So how did you not kind of feel bad about always mm-hmm. starting over? Well, it, it certainly uh, was not easy. I don't want it to sound easy. I convince myself of that to help me adapt, right? Uh, There was certainly a lot of trial and error. (laughs) Uh, But what helped is the constants in my life. So my family was a constant. Uh, My mom and dad loved and still love each other. Um, My siblings and I, no matter what teenage, you know, rivalry you come between us, we truly loved each other and were close. And um, my sister was my best friend growing up and she still is. And so the constants, constants in my life, uh, you know, helped, made it, did not make me feel like um, anything is um, missing. 
Yeah, no, that's a real gift when you have that. I mean, that's just great, that kind of familial stability. The uh, kind of few Christian in the Muslim class, um, do you recall early on what that felt like? Oh, you got to leave now. Uh, well, early on, it felt like, woohoo, we get to leave, right? One less subject <laughs> to study for. But then, but then over time, we realized, oh, wait something is happening and we're not there. Occasionally, I'd be the only Christian in class and sometimes I would be one of two or three or whatever. Um, so it had its pluses and minuses. Um, but I was fortunate to have Muslim friends who truly never made that a factor. Our background, our religion was not what made us different. Did you um, have a chance to learn about the Muslim religion? I'm just curious, you know, how... Definitely. Um... You know, um, it, when the Arabic language classes uh, growing up, especially, well, the curriculum in the entire country, but especially in public schools, uh, had a lot of religious texts from the Quran in it. So yes, we often studied Muslim texts um, for the Arabic because the uh, Arabic language in the Quran is no is taught to be the reference for the proper classical Arabic. So Did I learned you... a lot about people around me, their culture, I knew how they lived. Um, during the Eid season, we would go and visit them in their homes. It's a tradition to go from home to home, visit as many people as you can within that two to three people day period. When it was Christmas or Easter, they would do the same. They would come to our homes and visit us. And it's, it's a quick visit, you know, just a time to connect with the people you know and love. Uh, we always have a small cookie or a coffee or whatever. Um, but I guess it's roughly four times a year you um, will see these people at minimum. They'll come to your house or you'll go to their house. Oh, that's so wonderful. When, when you, um, you know, fast forward to the world today, when you see folks perhaps not getting along, let's put it that way. Uh, Rima, what, what comes to you? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is any of it worth it? Is, is it worth having a rivalry with a sibling or a parent or a cousin or a friend? Um, these are humans that were brought into your life for a reason. They have something to offer and you have something to offer for them. Is any of it worth um, not having this relationship with them? We as humans have a, a lot of differences and disagreements between us. There's always common ground. There is always a reason to love and to get along. And I think you just have to find that reason. Oh, could we put you in the front of the media? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. Okay, so let's go to the, okay, how did the, the book fair, you're on a book for a year. Talk to us mm -hmm. about how this came about. Yeah, so this was part of a mission trip um, to go and serve with these 350 people from around the world. Um, everyone had to raise their own funds to be on the ship. And coming from uh, a not rich country, not ch rich community, um, uh, most of my support actually came from other countries, not from Jordan itself. Uh, so my friend and I, we went and spent that year on the ship um, serving in any capacity uh, we can using the skills we have. So the, my first three months there, I was in the book fair, literally uh, going around selling when people came to visit, especially that the first, those three months, we spent a lot of time um, 
in the Arabian Gulf, where there are Arabic-speaking countries. So I was able to use my language skills, obviously, to translate and, and talk to people and socialize with them and so on. Uh, and then the rest of the time, I utilized my uh, artistic skills, so to say. <laughs> I quickly taught myself some graphic design, and I was working in the communications office, you know, between creating flyers, working with my buddy who was a photographer, taking his photos, um, cataloging them, some edits here and there, and so on. So uh, that experience taught me so much, both for, you know, technical skills I use in my career, but more importantly, um, relationship skills and human interactions and uh, cross-cultural relationships really uh, with those people who are on board and the people who came to visit. So can you unpack some of these cultural ahas, you know, as a young person? Um, and, and by the way, were you like, was it mainly like you're on the ship for a whole year? How often were you? Yeah. The whole yeah. Ship? I visited uh, over 30 cities without having to unpack. <laughs> So yes, we lived each of us. We you know the the we called them cabins, and um, we share. We were four people to the one room or the one cabin, um, and we moved around. Uh, believe it or not, not a lot of time was spent at sea, because we would travel from city to city for like say a, a couple of days, and then we stay in that city for a week. In some cities, we stayed longer, some shorter. My longest trip at sea was about two weeks, going from Djibouti to Mauritius. That was a lot of fun for me because I had strong sea legs. Not so fun to many of my friends who were seasick in their rooms. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we moved from city to city doing different things with different um, people that we met in those cities. Right. So now, now get take us to some of the cultural. I mean, were you always so, you know, eyes wide open and welcoming? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's impressive. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, I, well, they train us really well before we get on board, right? Um, and you meet all sorts of people from all um, backgrounds and levels and religions. I still remember the smell and taste of uh, coffee being roasted in front of us by a Somali lady uh, who took us to her apartment. And she had a little thing with coal right there in, in the room. She rented one room in an apartment and she roasted the coffee, ground it and made this coffee and we drank together. I mean, how amazing is that? Um, I had people who were um, business people in Singapore who we would have conversations about the architecture in the island. Um, these, these interactions with people are just so fascinating just to see how uh, different our backgrounds are and how similar we are as human beings. Yeah, that's just priceless. Were your parents like, okay, go live on a boat. That's great. Were they 100% on board with this? <laughs> Definitely not at the beginning, especially my dad. Like, You're asking a Middle Eastern man to send his daughter away. He doesn't know where she will be at what time. You know, no internet. Barely. Well, we did have internet at that time, but we had access to internet maybe once or twice a week on the boat to go send an email. That's all we could get. Um, so it was, I have to give it to him. It was very brave of him <clears throat> to let me go. Uh, but once I did, he was happy I did. And uh, when I came home a year later, he was, it, he made me feel like he's proud of me for doing it. That is fantastic. 
Um, so as an architect, and I want you to know, I am like a wannabe architect. <laughs> I wish, <laughs> I wish uh, I may have said this before, but you know, th- this, that ability to design for, um, you know, for function and aesthetic, right. And spaces mm-hmm. that bring people together. I kind of dream- dreamify architect. I, I don't, I could never have done it. Like I'm just not that precise. Um, but was that something you naturally drawn to? How did that come into your so, so Molly, I want to tell you, my dream is to be an architect too, but let me explain. <clears throat> so uh, growing up in, in high school, I was determined to be a dentist of all things. I really wanted to be, I just thought it was the coolest profession in the world. Uh, but the system in Jordan, um, we have this uh, end of high school exam, just one exam, and your grade in that exam determines the trajectory of your academic career after that and your your whole career after that. So I was um, 0.2% short of getting into the school that I wanted. So I ended up in the School of Engineering at the University of Jordan. And because I just, I was the artsy person at home. I had a knack for it, whether it's drawing or crafts or um, making things. I always loved to make things with my hands. Uh, So uh, you had to choose in your first year, what type of engineering? Do you want the general engineering for a year and then you specialize in structural or civil or so on? Or you can start from year one in architecture engineering because it takes five years to finish that. So I chose architectural engineering. I um, won't deny that a bunch of my friends, we all made that decision together <laughs> to, to stay together. Uh, so I I did that. And now that I became an architect, I quickly recognized that I am the architect who knows how to, um, I'm the technical architect, right? So I know how to uh, get things done. I know how to manage a project. I know how to draw. I know how to build the things that I built in my career but i am not that design architect i always needed to partner with that person who had the more creative side to them and with our skills combined we did amazing work Uh, and that is part of um, what helped me be successful is i recognized this at the beginning and i partnered with the right people along the journey that's brilliant that's really really brilliant i i'm so I'm so laughing. You were dying to be a dentist because I, and I listeners have probably heard this. My mom at one point was, you know, you had to be a doctor. And finally oh. she realized I wasn't going to be a doctor. And so then she went to dental. So I have dentist. And I was I literally had to yell. I mean, I felt terrible. She's listening now. I'm like, mom, I am not going to be a dentist. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And, you know, I speak to friends now, a lot of people whose backgrounds are, I don't know, Middle Eastern, Asian, so many countries, so many cultures, you're going to be a, a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Those are your three choices, right? Totally. totally. <laughs> so I joke about it with my kids, but neither of them is going into any of those fields, which is more than okay by myself and my husband. Uh, so, so tell me about meeting your husband and he was working and then, you know, love yeah. prevailed and you're like, I'm going to leave Jordan. Yeah, exactly. I was one of those independent young ladies in Jordan. I finished my education. I'm now working. I have my income. I have my independence. And I have seen over the years um, this, you know, groom coming from the U.S. selecting a bride or someone selecting a bride for him. Uh, He gets married and whisks her off to the U.S. And I loved living in Amman. I had a great community, very, very good friends. The last thing on my mind was leaving 
uh, Jordan. But of course, as you say, love prevails. I very quickly fell in love with Hanny, who had come to Jordan uh, for a cousin's wedding. And that cousin's brother, also a cousin, kind of made sure that we met one way or another. We ended up meeting in his kitchen one morning. Uh, and, you know, from there it was history. Uh, we quickly fell in love um, a year and a, almost a year and a half later, we were married. Uh, and I moved to the U.S. in 2001, where I started my immigration papers. Wow. And I yeah, I became a citizen in 2007. Wow. So parents, that is, was that sort of shocking or were they not surprised? They were surprised but not shocked um, because they knew that I loved living there and staying in Jordan. When they met Hani, they you know, quickly knew that that's the one, that he's the one for Rima. And um, they were very, very happy for me and supportive. Oh, so talk about your early days in the States. Had you visited the States? I only visited I only visited after Henny and I got engaged. So <laughs> I came here for a month. Uh, in that month, I went to three different states. I went to see his extended family in Kansas City, who are amazing people. We still, you know, this past Christmas, we went and spent time with them there. Um, so I had only come here for a visit. And mind you, that visit was pre or just before 9-11, right? This was in the year 2000. Uh, so the U.S. I came to as an immigrant is very different than the U.S. I visited when I was engaged to my now husband. Uh, so when I moved here, I did a few contracts here and there, some with the World Bank, some with others. Uh, and then I decided, uh, we, once we had our babies, I decided I want to be home with the boys for a couple of years. Uh, then I guess when the younger was uh, two years old, we took them to daycare and I went back into the workplace, worked in the private sector in architecture um, until a few years later, uh, in 2010, I left that job. And then 2011, I joined the Federal Reserve where I still work now. Wow, wow, wow. wow. Okay, so let us talk a bit about this um, working, um, deciding to be home, right? And then getting mm -hmm. back into the workforce. And, you know, it's not, it's never an easy choice, you know, because you really want to be there for your kids. Um, was that, was that you who said, I, I need to go back? I mean, how, 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 what were the conversations yeah. with Hani? So it was definitely me wanting to come back because, come back because my brain needed to go back. I loved being home with the boys, um, but I was, did not enjoy it as much as I enjoyed being in the workplace. Uh, and at that time, I was, you know, there was a lot of hesitation or um, low self esteem, I guess or low confidence in going back to the work. Not only have I been out of the workplace for quite a few years, I was also still transitioning from Jordan to the US, right? So my brain was still in the metric system. Uh, I had to adjust quickly and I was willing to do anything. I said, you know what, I'll just be a drafter in an architectural firm. I could do anything. Anyone who would give me a job, I'll take it. And it really uh, was thanks to Hanny who sat me down and said, don't short yourself, short sell yourself, Rima. This is uh, not only do you bring great value to the workplace, um, you come with skills that the people who live here and are working here don't necessarily have. And it took some adjusting on my part 
to, you know, recognize that and understand that. And yes, the first couple months were rough, tr- switching back and forth between imperial and, and metric systems, but it's it's easy to learn. You quickly adapt. And now I can do both, right? Instead of just one system or the other. Um, so there was an adjustment. Definitely, there was some encouragement uh, that helped me uh, get over this hump of, am I good enough to go back into the workplace? And am I good enough to work in the U.S. market? Um, it, once I got over that, things went smoothly and I and I had a very um, positive experience. Well, I appreciate your being upfront about that. And how much do we love Hani for being like, okay, sit down. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Sit down, sister. Let me tell you, you're better than you think. Um, I um, I would love just, you know, when you first got to the States, do you recall the first impressions? So one of the, th- my friends back home in Jordan, of course, all ask me, especially when we go visit, how is it different? How is it different? And I found myself using a word more often than any other word. And I would say life in the U.S. is much more convenient than life in Jordan. We have everything here. There's an abundance of everything. Uh, Food, water. Jordan is a desert country, right? It can't tell you how much of a difference water makes to a a country's economy. Um, Transportation, public transportation, public uh, utilities and services and hospitals and medical systems and everything we have here is so convenient. And this is before the... um, the Ubers and the lifts and all of that, right? Um, so it was nice. It was nice to have all these things at my disposal uh, and learning how to use them and be grateful to them, obviously, for because I did not grow up with them. I did not have them in Jordan. And to this day, Jordan doesn't have many resources like we have here. Uh, so that was a little bit of a, a positive adjustment, I guess. Um, there's always the adjustment of well, even uh, any any um, circle I'm in, I'm sort of an outsider. I don't want to say that in a negative way, but you know, I'm I came from the outside and now I'm integrating into this group of people. Um, I think it's helped me that our community um, socially and a church and so on, we always had uh, and really the nature of living in DC, right? it's an international community and there were always people around me from all sorts of cultures and backgrounds and countries. Um, so that was a, a smooth, I would say, transition into life in the U S. Yeah. Do you, how, how do you identify? Like, do you, how do you relate with your culture? How, how do you describe yourself? That's a good question. And let me start by saying when uh, Hanny and I, when our boys started going to school, elementary school, Hanny and I had our conversation of, okay, we want to make sure our kids do not grow up confused. We want them to know um, that they are American with a Middle Eastern heritage from Palestine and from Jordan. Um, So we were intentional about making sure they have that. We are still um, Palestinian or Jordanian immigrants to the U.S. or Palestinian Americans, I guess. Um, But we're not unique. Everyone around us is something American, right? Uh, Yeah, does that answer the question? (laughs) 
Yeah, it's just, you know, it's really, you know, I think for the folks who have the the privilege of crossing borders, how, you know, how you identify is, you know, and it's fluid, right? I think in, in, yeah. in points of time. And I think to be able to really appreciate the roots and, you know, we've talked about this in- inclusive, you know, to be able to like get the best of everything, um, learn from things that maybe weren't so great, um, but to be very grounded in that identity, I think is very helpful, right? Because I think it's right. that sense of who we are. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm curious, the boys, what languages do the boys speak? They, their first language is English. Uh, Joseph, the younger one, has a knack for languages, so he can understand anything Hani and I say to each other in Arabic. Uh, and I would say he speaks, I don't know, a few words, enough to get by or enough to be cute to get what he wants out of me. <laughs> did they, uh, did you want them to study or learn Arabic? I encouraged them. Uh, both their high schools had Arabic in as a, you know, uh, elective, I guess you could take both. And I actually also encouraged them to take Spanish because that's widely spoken in the U.S. and around us. Both boys selected French. <laughs> if you push French, if you push yeah. French, maybe they would have pushed French. <laughs> exactly. That should have been my strategy. <laughs> Um, when you went back, would you share a bit about, for you, the experience of working mom? Um, what was that like? I mean, the daycare thing. I, I'm just, I'm just curious how you navigated that. Um, you know, it wasn't uh, the easiest. We lived in the suburbs at that time, and the daycare for our children was downtown near wh- where we worked. So for quite a while, we would leave the house before daylight and not see our house until it was dark um, because we wanted to avoid the evening rush hour. So we would eat uh, dinner somewhere downtown before we traveled back to our home. Um, and then, you know, after a while, we realized this is really not sustainable. Um, eating out is not healthy, no matter how hard you try. Uh, we're not spending as much time with each other because we're spending a lot in the car. So we... Um, rented our house in the suburbs, rented a condo here closer to downtown. And we cut that commute um, down to like 20 or 30%, which was a lifesaver for us. Uh, it, it, it really, really helped. Um, early in my career, and I know many, many moms around me are in the same boat. Um, all of my salary, of course, Hani and I have, you know, our financials are together, but this money that I was making all went to taxes and childcare and nothing else. If anything, uh, maybe uh, it was short by a little bit. But I recognize at that time, and again, with Hanny's encouragement, that was the investment in my career. And so true that those, uh, we did that for about three years. Um, those three years are what uh, helped me grow technically to help me succeed in my career later on. Yeah, that is, is, uh, it's great that you were able to make that investment. I am wondering, based on your experience, Rima, any thoughts about what shifts in the workplace could happen uh, that would make it easier, better to take advantage of, um, you know, women working moms? 
in the workforce? Uh, I know this is not something many companies or organizations can offer, but our childcare system is so expensive, uh, at least in our area here uh, in the DC region. And I don't know if, if it's subsidies or some kind of system to make it less of a financial burden would make a huge, huge difference. It's healthy for the kids to go and socialize. It's healthy for the dad and the mom to uh, have a choice to go to work and enjoy it and um, yield some income out of it without having to spend so much on childcare. You know, this is probably very, um, you know, I'm dreaming, but it certainly would have helped us a lot. Yeah, no, I and, think this is, it's a, it's very valid, you know, and I think that. Yeah. You know, and as a, as an immigrant family, we did not have parents close around us here who could help us with the, with childcare. Um, and I think a lot of people in the DC region are in our situation. Yeah. How did you find, um, I guess from a, um, faith background, um, the places that you worship and that community, was that an easy place for you to find? Um, a it really, community? Yeah. It's, it's really helped me that my husband was already part of a religious community and it's an Arabic Baptist church here in the DC region. Um, when our kids got a little older, we moved and uh, now we go to an English speaking uh, international church called Washington International Church, where I have a community very similar to what I had on the ship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people from all over the world uh, worshiping together, getting along. Uh, we are uh, very different in our um, uh, political convictions, but uh, we have something that keeps us uh, in unity, and it's just an amazing um uh, you know, congregation to be part of. How, um, how do you, I mean, you know, because I, I think the, there's so much discourse these days, people are kind of opposite, polarizing views, name, whatever. Uh, so I'm wondering in your church, how you handle the dissent? I mean, is there a, a lot of, you know, there's just, how are you getting along, you know, and, and, um, that's a good question. And I think this is uh, before all this political turmoil and and discord in the country before, well, it was always there, but before it got a lot. Um, this church was always focused on Jesus and on the Bible. So um, the politics were not a place uh, for the, the time of worship. But as things got a little more heated in the country, we, you know, we had to face it. We had to talk about it. So there were quite a few conversations at the, we used to have lunch every week at our church. Um, I remember many conversations uh, during those lunch hours, very friendly, with love, with compassion, with understanding and acceptance of the person sitting across from you at the table. You are both still um, children of God, no matter what differences come between you uh, in, the, in the political world. It should not affect your relationship and your uh, love and service to the people around you and to the community. Well, it's just great that that was modeled, you know, and I, I just um, I'm kind of wondering, Rima, when you see the folks 
perhaps not able to see the other side, what um, what do you think we can be doing? I think I go back to what I said earlier. Is it worth it? You know, it's this is a, a human um, with the same struggles and challenges that you face. You see things from a different lens than they do, but that does not make you very different from them. We are all created alike. We are all created the same. And there's room um, for you to allow this other person to be, to disagree with you. Yes, I think that what I'm coming from you is just, and I love it. You're just, you have a very, you're at peace with yourself, Rima. And it's so, it's very obvious, which doesn't mean you think you're right all the time or what have you. But I do personally think that the folks who, are on firm footing within, um, aren't necessarily reacting to defend. Um, right. Yeah, you have a you have a natural openness and curiosity that um, is very disarming. Uh, you know, I'm I'm wondering, you know, catch you off guard here. How good are you at directing? You know, here you are when you're in the work environment. Are you? Uh, lead from the front? Is that a natural state for you? Well, it's been a journey for sure. When I first started leading people, uh, I was a contributor just like them. And I wanted to make sure that I don't, you know, switch that hat uh, with with a, f- a switch flip, literally. Um, so at the beginning, I did it all. And I had to learn through mentors, through other people around me, through trainings um, that Delegation is an art and a skill that is is essential, not only for my own success, but actually for the people who I lead for their success. So yeah, it was a journey. It's been still a journey, I would say, um, because it doesn't come natural to me. So say more about this, because I do think that this is, I think you've got a lot of people's ears open because it is a, a transition. And so just share with us, if you will, maybe there's some mistakes that you made or how you have, um, how you're finding your way, right, to be able to delegate in, in that artful way. Yeah. Uh, let me think. Um, it, the nature of what we do, um, we are constantly busy, right? Year round, our workload does not ease up. We don't have, oh, an end of year push or early in the year break. No, our work is constant. Um, The nature of facilities, frankly, and projects and so on. Um, And so when I first started, I knew how busy and burdened my team was. And I did not want to add to their burden, right? I didn't want to add to their load. Um, There is also, of course, I I confess, and I think um, many people struggle with this with me, well, if I'm going to spend half an hour explaining to this person how to do it, I can do it in 10 minutes. But then you start seeing um, the value of investing half an hour in showing someone how to do something or teaching them a new skill or whatever it is and how it will yield results for you and for the organization multiplied over time because now that person has learned how to do this particular thing. Um so it it um it takes it takes practice it takes daily reminders that um Rima no 
if this is something you can give to another person, and as they say, if that person can do it 50% of the quality that you expect, then that's good enough for them to take it on. Uh, and it only helps people grow, helps you grow, because their success means your success. Well, very easily said. Uh, I am wondering, you mentioned a few mentors, any particular mentoring moments that you might recall? Uh, there's one moment that um, stays with me and I'm, I'm still figuring, at, figuring it out. Um, I was talking to a mentor about helping people um, transition in what they, their space looks like. And he said something to me to the effect of, you know, Rima, as you're, as you're talking to people, you can't expect uh, to change their values. Their values are their values. What you could do um, is is help them understand what the change is, help them understand the value of that change and what it does to them, but you can't expect them to change their values. And that, I'm still, you know, working through this. If you have thoughts, Molly, I welcome them. Um, it's not an easy thing. It's it's a it's a little bit abstract to me, and I always have to try and apply it to certain situations in order to understand it better. Um, but it, but it stayed with me till now. People, I started thinking of myself and what my values are, and and what am I willing to change or not change? It, it's a it's a I'm still growing in this. I still need to figure it out. I love it. It's very profound, and I certainly don't have any better answer. But I love the as part of our little say it skillfully part of the show to talk a bit about it. I I see this. You know, when we have different value sets, and I think. The potential issue is when the values are um, counter, right, to um, the other persons or the organizations. And I do think that from a leadership standpoint, establishing values, how we treat each other, you know, what do we do in tough times, being very clear about that helps people make the smart choice if this organization is or isn't the right fit, you know, and I think that the being able to articulate those values and like, what does it look like when we do it? And mm -hmm. I think is, is, is important. And that ability to co-create what that looks like, you know, it's easy to say honest and um, respectful. Well, you know, those are big words. I and mean, what mm -hmm. does respect look like here? Um, what is it? You know, I, I've said this before, you know, I, um, trust, trust, trust is I can look at the text messages on your phone, right? People are like, no, you can't look at the text messages on my phone. So, right. you know, I, I think that the, the articulation of values is key. And then the ability to be curious about someone's values and, you know, ask what that means to them. And then potentially just to offer, you know, I, I have a, a different one. Here's where I'm at on it. It may be an agree to disagree. And it may be that there's more similarity than not if people are willing to, to consider it differently, right? And I think it's, it can get dogmatic. People can get dug in. Then that's mm -hmm. a hard thing, right, for people. People then end up defending, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and, it, it's a hard one. And I love what you just said. I did not think about it. Um, really articulating their values. First of all, I should recognize I can't do it for them. They need to articulate them. And then, like you're saying, dig deep into that value. What does it exactly look like? I'm going to start using that. 
I, I appreciate you you bringing this up. This is a really fundamental part of just teams working together and you know, what's responsive? You're responsive. I sent an email and I get a response 10 minutes later, you know, what's, and so it's, there's no, I don't think there's an inherent good, bad, right, wrong. I just mm-hmm. want to offer for folks listening that, that you are on the same page. I call this the shared reality, you know, with your colleagues about mm-hmm. like, what's great look like, what's acceptable and what's not. And if there's any ambiguity, which of course there is that everyone feel empowered to say, Hey, help me understand, you know, what, what works for us. Um, mm-hmm. And then these things change, you know, I mean, for gosh sakes, with the whole COVID people working from home and people used to be more in constant contact, I actually think it's really created an opportunity um, and a need for people to be even better in their communication, mm-hmm. right? Because there's so much more space <laughs> to be misunderstood. Right. I think, oh, right? yes. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Remo, what about, you know, I, I appreciate your, uh, the growth topic. I am curious, your own self, do you have a growth area of, um, uh, in particular you're working on? Oh, many, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I will confess this and I hope, uh, certain colleagues of mine do not hear this, but they will. Um, English is, I, I think I can say English is my first language, uh, but even if it truly is my first language, I'm still growing in the area of um, articulating my ideas and thoughts in a in a better way. So it's something I'm constantly working on. Reading certainly helps growing in that aspect. Uh, I I still have a long way to go. <laughs> We're, there's no there there. there, there that's a, <laughs> that's a very big space. So. Um, I think that you're well on your way and, and the fact that you're aware and intentional about it is 80, 80% for sure. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rima, talk about being a mom and, you know, just what you've learned about being a mom that's helped you at work and vice versa. Um, so my boys um, are, are very independent and uh, we, um, there's always this, I call it, I guess, a challenge. In the Bible, it says, teach a child where they should go. Um, and our current um, reality or life uh, and what we teach our kids and our educational system and schools and so on, um, you, it's a balance between telling them where they should go and really giving them the choice to become who they are to become. Right. And um, so as a mom and really in in partnership with Hanny, as a mom and dad, we wanted our kids to become who they should become and not what we want them to become. Uh, And so we did our best to instill the truth in them, uh, teach them to the best of our abilities. Certainly our community around us was a big factor, the village that helped us raise them. and so now that they're grown, they're almost adults. Uh, one is in college and one is a senior. They are just amazing human beings with empathy and compassion towards others. Um, whenever, well, recently we went on a service trip to work with Syrian refugees. They came with us and they blew me away in their compassion and their willingness to serve in whatever capacity they're asked to serve. Um, so what I learned from that as a, you know, we did this not because we knew how to do it, but 
this is how we ended up doing it. I recognize that every uh, person I work with, whether they work for me or I work for them, every person needs to be who they are. And my role as a leader is to support them in giving them the opportunity to be their best um, without have without needing or having to, to change them. They bring enough value and they bring enough um, skill to whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, and so I think that's the connection I can make between being a parent and, and uh, being a leader. I think people are like, would you be my leader? <laughs> well, I have amazing people I work with. And I can't tell you how much I've learned from them over the years. I'm blessed to be working in this organization for 12 years now. And uh, it it helps to grow together. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just smiling at that. Um, the how much you're how much um, you love seeing them grow. It's very clear, you know, that that's a win for you, Definitely. of course. And obviously, as a parent, seeing your child flourish is yeah is super exciting. And, you know, you know, again, I don't have my own kids, but, you know, raising people for a world you don't really know, I mean, doesn't really get much harder, you know? And so it's a, it's really an amazing um, thing that, that you and Hani are are doing. So this, Oh, we went to work with Syrian refugees. Would you just say a bit about how that came about and what was that like? (laughs) Oh yeah, sure. (laughs) So being in an amazing international church, um, we always have a heart for mission, and one of one person in our small group said, "Well, why don't we go to Jordan?" This was when was our first mission trip? I think 2016 or so. Um, so we connected with people we knew uh, in the northmost city in Jordan called Mafraq, uh, and they have an organization there that helps refugees who are not in the refugee camp, who some one way or another ended up living in the city. Um, so we go there, we raise funds, uh, we um, uh, purchase these uh, food packages and we go visit them. Part, part of this service and part of the culture, senior Syrian and Jordan culture, is it's not about just dropping off a package of food. It's about sitting in these people's homes with them, drinking their ultra-sweet cup of tea, <laughs> and talking to them about their story and showing them that the rest of the world knows about them, can see them, and wants to know uh wants to know their story. And so we, because Henny and I have the language skills, obviously, um, we would always go on separate teams to translate. My mom from who lives in Jordan would join us on this trip. Um, my niece came once. So different people come and help us from Jordan, as well as the group who comes from the US. And we literally spend a week going from home to home, visiting these refugees, talking to them about their struggles, their journey that got them to that point uh so many so many tragedies they've been through um and just listening to them was was plenty was more than enough for them to feel that the world sees them i got to watch my kids um before we left they went on youtube and taught themselves how to make balloon animals so when we visit a home with kids uh, my boys will be on the side playing ball or making balloon animals for the kids. They learned their colors and they would ask the child what color you want and what animal you want while the adults sat and drank tea and talked with each other. It was a very rewarding uh, experience for all of us. 
Oh, warms my heart. Rima, how, how does that impact you? It just keeps me grounded. It's, it reminds me of the world around us and what's going on. And uh, we have a very privileged life here in the US. It's, it's wonderful to live here, but the, world, the rest of the world does not have what we have. And it's just good to stay connected with what's happening in the rest of the world. You are a great example for all of us. Um, okay, we could go on and on. Let me bring it to a wrap here. Wrap with two questions. One is, you know, you've heard yourself say a lot and just reflect here on your life. Do you have a top takeaway from listening to yourself? Well, I want to make sure, yes, everything I said sounds, uh, you know, very positive and, and, and wonderful, but I want people to know, you know, my life was real. It wasn't, um, it wasn't always, you know, sunny. There's always struggles that we go through. I think that having, it's the people around me who make me who I am. Certainly my partner in life and my husband, Hanny, uh, has so much to do with it. My family, my two sisters, a brother, and my parents, um, my church, uh, my friends, these are the people who make you, who say a lot about who you are. Uh, and it's just thanks to them is why I have this peace. Very clear. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, Rima, what was it like for you to share your journey with us today? It was scary, Molly, very scary. <laughs> uh before I started, but you, I told you this before, you're a magician, you have a knack for when I met you, do you remember that first dinner I met you? Uh, and we, and I, I had forgotten that you were the speaker, you know, I just thought you were one of the women I was meeting that evening. And you sat next to me at the dinner table and we started talking. And before I knew it, my life story was out and we were having such a nice and smooth and pleasant conversation. You have this amazing talent of helping people bring what's inside out, become more self-aware and seeing themselves in other people's lenses. So thank you for that. Thank you. Real privilege has been all mine. I want to thank you for going to the scary place and opening <laughs> up about your life journey. I uh, hope listeners will consider what theirs, uh, their journey is. And there's so much to learn and, um, uh, be inspired by yours, a, a real gift. So my friend, you know how to reach me. I am always here for you, cheering for you big time. I want to thank you for being part of the solution and you're helping us all be safe, seen and heard and our true and very best selves. You take good care. You too, Molly. Thank you so much. Oh, so wonderful. Okay. I, uh, I have a thought for the week and I may have seen this um, on Instagram from one of the daily positive quotes, mm -hmm. encourage you to embrace failing as essential to learning. Think of F-A-I-L as first attempt in learning. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Rima's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 